You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank our friends at ZipRecruiter for their continued support of SpyCast, and welcome a new member of the SpyCast family, Audible. You'll be hearing more about these great companies later, but first, let's meet our guests. So we're joined today remotely uh, via technology with Joel Whitney, who is the co-founder and editor-at-large of Guernica, a magazine of art and politics. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New Republic, Boston Review, the San Francisco Chronicle, Descent, Salon, NPR, New York Magazine, and The Sun. With photographer Brett Van Ort, he co-wrote the 2013 TED Talks ebook on landmine eradication, Mindscape, and his poetry has appeared in the Paris Review, which we'll hear about today, The Nation, and Agni. His salon essay on the Paris, on the Paris Review and the Congress for Cultural Freedom was a notable in the 2013 Best American Essays. He's also the author of the new book, Finks, How the CIA Tricked the World's Best Writers. Welcome, Joel. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, one of the interesting things that we don't have a lot of people talking about the cultural side of the Cold War, talking about the CIA and what we talk about is soft power. Uh, so we're, we're happy to have you here. And one of the centerpieces of your book is an organization that I mentioned in your bio, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, the CCF. This is something that people may not have heard a lot about. There have been a couple of books in the past about it, but your book really hunkers down and, and, and focuses on uh, really the, the on-the-ground details of this, this organization that had a pretty strong impact on the Cold War. So can you give us a little bit of the history of the CCF and how it played a, a vital role in the fighting of the Cold War? Yeah, it, um, it came up in the late 40s and early 50s when a group of concerned Americans and Europeans um, Many of whom had fought in World had fought in World War II were um, were interested in something like a Ministry of Culture, um, and the reason they thought the time was right to have such a, a ministry or such an organization um, was because they saw that some of the Western European intellectuals um, in the post-war era were interested in the Soviet Union precisely for its culture. Um, and they were also aware that some of that was explicit cultural propaganda of sorts. And um, I think they were worried that the Soviet Union might win over some hearts and minds through its culture. So they thought if only we had something that reminded our allies, and uh, in some cases they might use the phrase wavering peoples of the world to talk about the third world, um, to, they, they wanted to, to see if they could bolster this idea that um, Americans were not just about Cadillacs and tanks and hamburgers, rock and roll and blues, um, which the world, and Hollywood, of course, which the world knew us through, but we also had, you know, the, uh, we also had the Boston Symphony Orchestra. We had a new kind of painting called Abstract Expressionism with Jackson Pollock, a sort of jazz on the canvas, and they wanted to champion these these um, these aspects of American high culture, and uh, they also were up against, I think, the forces of maybe some of the small town conservatives in the legislature, 
the pre-McCarthy uh, sorts in the Congress, they didn't think these guys were going to necessarily um, approve of anything resembling a ministry of culture. So suddenly they had this problem, how to fund this without um, a costly, maybe unwinnable debate in Congress. And so the CIA had this uh, this, this magic bullet, which was its, um, its mostly sort of not line item accountable budget a sort of obscure budget um where they could they could they could do it through the covert op side um and that was how organizations like the congress for cultural freedom were born now the congress for cultural freedom starts off as basically an organization that is answering the the world peace conferences that the soviets were were presumed to be sponsoring that's phase one phase two they're creating magazines um and they're sort of working with other magazines to um, sort of mass syndicate um, some of the, the pieces that would appear in those first magazines um, or they would take things from mainstream magazines and syndicate them into those magazines but um, I looked predominantly as someone who founded an, a literary magazine online called Guernica I was just interested in the magazine version of the Congress for Cultural Freedom and what they did largely through magazines now, the way that you described it it sounds a whole lot like they focused on positive propaganda about how great the United States was. But that certainly wasn't the entirety of their mission. They, they weren't just saying how great we are. I guess the darker side of the CCF was kind of the attack dog side, going after people like the non-aligned countries and, and anyone who attacks uh, U.S. domestic policy and talks about things like racial issues or uh, sexist issues in the United States. So can you talk a little bit about the, uh, I guess, the darker side of what the CCF focused on? Yeah, I think um, it started off with exactly as you described, sort of a, a mission to do, you know, this this championing of first American and then sort of transatlantic Western European culture as kind of a, a hub of, of civilization and a kind of freedom that um, we wanted to, to have better known. Um, and then I think there was a subsidiary concern um, which I still think is honest, um, you know, which was embodied by those conferences, and you could see that in the magazines too. The idea that some of the attacks on the United States and on the West, um, maybe talking about its hypocrisy, talking about its past uh, history of military interventions in places like Latin America, some of those criticisms were probably sincere criticisms, but it was never clear which were, and some were also presumed to be uh, sponsored or funded or goaded by Soviet patronage or Soviet funding or Soviet propaganda outlets. So fighting back against that, um, I think to many of these folks was just common sense. But where I think it gets um, into the dark side of things or the sort of a little bit of a darker history is because of that first decision not to sort of to fight out to, to fight for this you know this quasi ministry of culture in the legislature which would have made it accountable because it wouldn't have had to be funded through secrecy i think that's where it gets interesting and problematic because the editors are being hired by cia agents um, some of them know and some of them don't so sometimes they're guessing what is acceptable. Sometimes they're being told that if something's controversial, particularly about the Western alliance, um, it needs to be sent up the bureaucracy. Presumably, some of them would have known that it was being sent to CIA handlers to, to check whether it was passable or not. So, yeah, one of the big stories um, that was known, even at the time, sort of as an open secret, was this essay by a, a fellow named Dwight McDonald, your listeners, many of them probably know who he was. He was kind of like the Christopher Hitchens of his day. He jumped around. He was a pacifist for a while, and then he became an anti-Stalinist. Um, he had his own magazine called Politics, which influenced Noam Chomsky. Um, but he was seen as a gadfly, and he would change his positions to suit what his current concerns were. And they changed, but they always had this sort of maverick sensibility. When he wrote something that was criticizing American culture after he He'd lived in Europe for a while. Um, the piece was killed by Encounter, the London-based CIA magazine sponsored by the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And he didn't really make a stink, but he wrote a preamble when he published it elsewhere. And the preamble said, 
this, um, I feel like my readers should know that this was killed by um, another magazine. The, the, the editors were worried about how it might affect the sponsorship. So he was talking about the sponsorship in a euphemistic way, and he claims he didn't actually know that it was a CIA outlet, but both his wife and later his his girlfriend, who I think became his second wife, both criticized him in biographies of him saying that he just wasn't asking questions because he didn't want to bite the hand that fed him. But what you would see is, yeah, mostly pro- positive, soft power style propaganda, cultural propaganda, very light, a uh, very light touch. It had to be subtle. They didn't want to tip their hand. They wanted to do it better than the Soviets. And then, of course, they were pushing back against some of the ideas that they thought were a threat to the cultural sort of cachet that they were trying to push. What, what I thought was interesting from the book is that they they should appear somewhat liberal. They need to, they need to not be hardcore right wing as then no one would take them seriously. But they're kind of caught in the middle, especially when McCarthyism kicks off, that they can't come across as too liberal. And I thought that was really kind of an interesting difficulty that they faced is how to find that right balance of being, you know, a, a, a magazine about art and politics, about getting good writers who are a little bit left of center to kind of talk about America in a positive way, but really towing that line to not drift into uh, being a target for McCarthy and his cohort. Yeah, I, I get the feeling from what you're describing is really part of the, the story that's most interesting to me. And I found that playing out in a couple of different ways in a couple of different places. The Congress for Cultural Freedom actually started as an American organization, and they were proud of their sort of coalition of leftist liberals, conservatives, and centrists. And McCarthy kind of split that group apart. So the American Committee for Cultural Freedom, which is the the original, um, is kind of displaced in 1950 when the Paris um, International Congress for Cultural Freedom is launched. And they're trying to remain relevant on the American scene. Um, and they're having these fights over things like McCarthyism as well as um, desegregation. And I think by the middle 50s, the liberal left camp had convinced the rest that the threat that was felt in 1950 after the Korean War starts, which would have felt palpable and very real to all of them, um, had diminished somewhat. And they, many of them, like Arthur Schlesinger, were making the argument that it was really distasteful to publicly chastise or humiliate or even, uh, in some cases, the right-wingers were suggesting that Charlie Chaplin figures like that should not only be kind of blacklisted, but should be chased out of the country. Um, and others, you know, when in the face of statements like that or ideas like that or behavior like that, um, many of them were saying, this is not how we're going to spread these ideas in Europe. So what you'd actually see is the Paris International Congress for Cultural Freedom chastising the American committee because either they sounded McCarthyite at times, they couldn't get their act together to actually condemn McCarthy, um, so there was this kind of cultural push and pull. If the if the idea is to target and to spread um, American culture among the intellectuals, say in Western Europe, as it was in the beginning, then yeah, if it sounds too right wing or too conservative or even too set in its views, um, then I don't think it's actually of interest to those people. And so. Um, another way it played out was in the Latin American magazines, especially after the Cuban Revolution, because some were arguing that the magazines would work best if they made this, quote, opening to the left. And what they wanted to say was, we understand that culturally you've been uh, distrustful of U.S. imperialism here, but Fidel is involved in a project to align his revolution with the Soviet Union, and that's where we think you should draw the line. And some people wanted to make that case. It took them a long time to convince uh, the Paris office, the leadership, to do it. And um, one of the fun little nerd moments I had in researching this was finding some letters among some uh, operatives of the Congress for Cultural Freedom who were pushing back against the idea that... uh, that the program was always perfectly just the right sort of level of liberal, um, that it was consistent, that there was no uh, censorship. Um, one of these guys who's still alive named Keith Botsford, he was sort of tracing these um, these battles over kind of the soul of what the Congress should publish, 
what it should sound like and what its politics should be. And, um, you know, to his credit, he was always pushing for this this very direct, honest debate and engagement across the aisle to the to the Cuban revolutionary sympathizers who may not have loved Fidel, but they, you know, consistently distrusted American motives in the region. We'll have more with Joel Whitney in a second, but now I want to tell you about ZipRecruiter. As I've told you before, ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. We open the new Spy Museum next year, and we're hiring people to work on exhibit development, research, and more. And we will eventually need to hire a lot more people as we get closer to the opening. And when we need to hire a new person, we want to get the very best people. And, of course, who doesn't? But the process seems never-ending, and it can take a huge amount of time, time we don't have as we try to run our current operation while planning the content for the new museum. The people at ZipRecruiter have the solution. So are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find these quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. And right now, SpyCast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash first. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. So you talked about a nerd moment. I've certainly had many of my own. Uh, I'm wondering, I mentioned in your biography that your poetry has appeared in the Paris Review, uh, because, and that really kind of jumped out. I'm wondering if that was a nerd moment, because the Paris Review uh, is really, talk about a single journal or single publication, it's the one that stands out as being arguably the most blatant CIA publication. Uh, Talk a little bit about that journal and a lot of it, because some of the history, especially some of the people who founded it, or at least worked at very prominent levels, are, are those that the listeners may have heard of and didn't realize that they were uh, on the payroll of CIA. Yeah, um, I'm happy to talk about that because it actually is a, one of those moments where I'm actually in the position of some of my characters, where I get to say, I published my poetry in the Paris Review when I was coming out of grad school. I was quite young, and I had actually... And I shouldn't say actually, it's it's probably wasn't very well known in the early 2000s. Um, but I had no idea that they had this history of, I would call it sort of soft power collaboration with the official magazines of the CIA. Um, I also never heard what was better known even before I started this project, which was that Matheson, one of the co-founders, the writer Peter Matheson, um, had founded it as part of his CIA cover. I didn't even know that, so I I just knew that it had this amazing cachet. I went to grad school uh, partly in pursuit of a of a poet professor that I admired, um, who happened to be their poetry editor. And so, in New York, in poetry circles, the magazine's cachet um, has to do with you know how long it's been in print, um, its logo, the people they've helped launch, and it's a well-deserved uh, legacy. Um, but at some point, I think after about 2009 or 2010, um, I heard about these ties through Matheson, and I started to dig around. I just thought of it as kind of a, you know, just a, a research project that could turn into a, a, an essay or something, which it did. Um, but the what what the Paris Review actually um, teaches us the most about, I think, in terms of the cultural Cold War, is this second level of uh, collaboration with the cultural CIA, the the magazines that were founded by the CIA, Encounter uh, in London, Prof in Paris, um, Mundo Nuevo a little bit later in Latin America, it turns out there were at least six in Latin America or aimed at Latin America. Um, They were all over the world, probably approaching three dozen, but certainly at least two dozen. But um, one of the geniuses of their subtlety was that they just... They were, 
they were again in search of this consensus. So they 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 came up with this scheme to um, have a conference where editors of really influential journals that already existed, not ones the CIA made, but ones that the CIA admired, um, would be sort of rallied around the idea of pushing back against crass, possibly Soviet-funded anti-Americanism. And that was sort of their one consensus item that they wanted to get into the heads of these editors. They called it the Publishing Clearinghouse. I found some letters suggesting that the conference was planned. Some of the magazine's editors had agreed to host, um, but a lot of them probably, um, you know, I don't have any evidence that the ones that were targeted were necessarily uh, involved in anything. But what it what it was was a very light touch kind of scheme to get um, a consensus around this idea of pushing back against anti-Americanism, and it turns into kind of a, a shared a sharing of content. They were trying to find business models that worked for little magazines. They were trying to figure out how to do anthologies. And so the Paris Review was not listed on that first um, letter where this is all proposed in a memo seeking money from a grant maker. Um, but it would have been later. It was not yet old enough to have been targeted. It was just being born. But what I found was that the Paris Review, um, you know, it's known I think largely for its great interviews, you know, these great interviews that sometimes Plimpton himself, one of the founders, the very illustrious editor and writer from New York, um, he would do these interviews and he would preside over them and he would, you know, put out the anthologies of the interviews and it was very much focused on how writers work. Writers at Work uh, was the title of the anthologies. Um, he would give those, he and his team were giving those out to the official CIA magazines, which to me is just, just you know, a shade away from harmless uh, and even, you know, helpful if you legitimately are worried that, um, you know, anti-Americanism might might help the Soviets win the Cold War, which people were. Um, what it turns into in the case of the Paris Review is they shared a staffer with the Congress for Cultural Freedom. It just becomes this, um, this friendly, that their offices in Paris were uh, not far from each other. So the Congress for Cultural Freedoms is, I think, near the Arc de Triomphe. And I think the Paris Reviews was on uh, Boulevard Haussmann. Um, and I think they were, you know, a five-minute walk from each other. And this fellow named Nelson Aldrich ends up sort of working at both for a little while while he's transitioning from the Paris Review to the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And every time he brought in the Paris editor to replace him or the next one, um, he had this design where the CIA would help pay the Paris Review's Paris editor's staff, you know, staff salary. Um, so they would split the cost of that editor, and he would sort of work for both. It was a scheme that he designed. I think it worked for him for a little while. It's not clear how long it lasted. Um, but it just shows you how what starts off as one agent's cover, you know, disentangles itself temporarily from the, the covert network, as some people call this, the cultural Cold War, as others call it. Um, and then shortly thereafter, in search of money, in search of a little extra money for syndication, it turns into this thing where they're actually sharing a staffer between the CIA and a, and a, and a small literary magazine, which is, to me, it's an astonishing story because, um, you know, we're in an environment now where, you know, some people wish that the, the, the powerful paid this much attention to literature and literary magazines but alas they, they would rather end the nea right well i mean there, there, are, there are a lot of people who are powerful that are paying a lot of attention to what's being written in the press uh but this is not quite <laughs> that point. same level um i want to i want to walk you through a couple of uh interesting events that, that people uh, and our listeners may know some of these names i mean if they've taken any basic literature courses these are going to be names they've run into in the yeah. past and they may not realize how much they were kind of pulled into witting or unwittingly uh, into the Cold War and, and the, you know, the intelligence battles during that time. And one of them you may have heard of. There's a very good book about uh, how Dr. Zhivago was a, uh, a CIA mission. But you kind of take it a little bit further than that um, and, and, and talk a little bit about the fact that there's a little shady side to this also. I, I, you know, when I read the book about the Zhivago mission, I'm like, ah, good for them. Nice job, CIA. Right. That was a... An excellent way of, you know, kind of sticking it to the Soviets. Um, but the aggressive nature of American propaganda, especially after the Soviets forced him to turn down his Nobel Prize, it, it really puts him at risk. There's a lot of gambling with his safety going on here. Yeah, I, 
I, I learned about that first from um, Francis Stoner Saunders, who wrote a piece in the London Review of Books, responding to one of those books. I think it was the 2014 book, The, the Zhivago Affair, yeah. that you, you may be talking about. Um, I enjoyed that book, and I felt the same way. It seemed to show um, through new CIA memos what was long suspected, which was that that book had an intelligence, um, kind of a U.S. intelligence mandate behind it. The, the record then proved that that was true. Um, and so uh, Francis Stoner Saunders suggested that maybe he was frail at that time and the the counter push, um, I can describe that in a second, that the CIA made to sort of help, you know, help, uh, help him stay on the side of the Cold War that they presumed he wanted to be on. Um, you know, the, the, the first book makes the CIA look re- rather more heroic than Francis Stoner Saunders' answer to the book. Um, and so I just, I wanted to read all that myself, but I also understood from my investigations into the Paris Review that the Paris Review actually played a small sort of publicity role. Um, and it was sort of long after the dispute was settled. That was when the Paris Review got around to actually getting over to Moscow to interview him. But um, he'd gone through complete hell. Um, it starts essentially when he finishes his first and only novel. He's been uh, a poet who's been nominated for the Nobel before that. Um, he finishes the book in about 56. It's not quite perfected. He's got notes um, in the margins. Um, by 58, he's given it to an Italian publisher. It's starting to come out in various Western European languages. Um, but the Soviets are very skittish about it. So um, Pasternak himself told his Italian publisher, who he trusted, as kind of the primary publisher. He told him, publish it in as many languages as you like. I would love for it one day to come out in Russian, but it's too sensitive right now. And whatever you do, don't have any American, let alone intelligence, involvement in this book, or it could put me at too much risk. So he was already kind of, he was already in trouble for giving it to a Westerner. His neighbor, this guy Boris Pilniak, had been shot in the head, essentially, for falling afoul of the Soviet leadership, partly by publishing abroad before he published in Russian. So this is this is a high-stakes game, and he himself knows how to play it. So right now, you know, we're in this, this weird world where um, human rights has essentially been weaponized by the Cold War. And I think what you learn from Pasternak is listen to what people tell you they want. And um, when dissidents want to take tentative steps to rebel against a repressive state, it has to be kind of on their terms. And what the CIA did that, you know, I think you see hints of in that Peter Finn book, Francis Stoner Saunders brings it out in the London Review books. I show how the Paris Review played into it. Um, What they did was they pushed a little further beyond what he wanted. And they may have put his health at risk after he's had a heart attack, essentially. He's frail. He's been denounced in the writer's union. And he's just starting to, like, his peace is just starting to be restored. One of the things the Soviet leadership was very adamant about um, him not doing I mean, what the Soviet Union, I mean, what the, what the CIA essentially did was they, 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 they rushed a Russian version. They had a couple of typos and misprints that made Pasternak pull his hair out and curse. Um, he would have known that maybe it was done by somebody who was like a CIA contractor, which, which in fact it was. Um, but his masterpiece has these mistakes in it. That was one of the things that would have, <laughs> and I say this jokingly, would have given any writer a heart attack. Um, but then as soon as sort of he's, he's settling in and trying to write this play before he dies, um, this, the Paris Review sends over an interviewer. <clears throat> and I think that's, that's relatively harmless. She was a Russian girl who'd fled with her parents. She had a cousin in customs who um, helped describe what she should do to get this interview. It wasn't all that taboo, but he himself had been told not to accept foreign visitors because they were likely either spies or press, as the Soviets would have seen it. He's got a sign on his wall that says, no foreigners, and he's got it in English, German, and I think French. Um, And so this Paris Review interviewer, who's never done an interview before, walks up, sort of knocks on his door. He receives her, and they get a a fine interview, but he's, he's not feeling like talking, and he's I think at that point about three months away from dying, and all he really wants at that point 
is to finish this play. He didn't quite make it. Um, he might also really want his book to be not filled with mistakes in all the yeah. translations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you talked about the, the militarization of culture. I thought that's a great phrase because we, we, we sometimes talk about that today when you look at things like movies like Argo and Zero Dark Thirty, which are the CIA was heavily involved in and, and the idea of you know trying to present a positive picture to the world, and, and for many people, they may not realize that that doesn't start with the last decade in the war on terror. And you talk about something, a concept called militant liberty that Hollywood was was part of during this time, and people like John Wayne and others uh, were heavily involved in this. Can you talk a little bit about this uh, and how it plays a broader role in this cultural Cold War? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the Congress for Cultural Freedom was interesting because it was specifically tasked with um, high culture because Americans were known for pop culture. And I assume that even before the Cold War, there was this, um, you know, all of the things that Americans are obsessed with and that we think of as heroic, for instance, technology, sort of manifest destiny. Um, I, I just assume all of those things were always in Hollywood, you know, big, big Hollywood films. Um, but there was an explicit mandate somewhere in the early to mid-50s to kind of align the messaging. And they had a number of meetings at people like John Wayne's house. I think uh, the, the director John Ford was involved. And it was, this one I think was partially CIA, but it was partially like, um, you know, it was the, mil the military board was also trying to do this. They were trying to champion um, this idea that um, freedom was not free, essentially. So that, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of it is sort of, circling around the just the heroics of the American military would have been what they were emphasizing um, after this period you start to see um, well militant liberty is its own thing and they actually had a booklet that they were handing out to directors after some of these meetings um, you know these these come out in memos that you know appear in various scholarly books uh, much later um, but it was a way to sort of sync up the mission of state with the mission of culture, pop culture in particular. Well, and it wasn't just raw, raw, USA is great. There's some actual censorship going on here, too, like movies that went after religion or showed Southern racism were censored in many ways. Yeah, what it, what it grows to uh, after these meetings, they actually, um, scholars have had a little bit of a, a dispute about who it was, but there was a mole, uh, basically a CIA spy embedded in Paramount Pictures, and um, you know his his job is to do uh, to do the secret bidding of the CIA, and actually to consider the American image abroad. Um, some people think it was this guy whose actual day job was to finesse, you know, a nice euphemism for censorship, but to finesse the films for specifically their overseas arrival. So if they were going to go into Indian markets, they would they would be sensitive perhaps to to Hindu. Uh, beliefs or French Catholics if they were going to France. So his day job is actually to finesse them for foreign markets, and then his sort of secret mission was also to sort of kill anything that makes Americans look bad in these terms that had already been um, set out by people who were talking about the conference of magazine editors and the Transatlantic Alliance. And so all of these instruments, which include like student groups, labor groups, um, they were sort of aligned around the same thing, and it lands in Hollywood with this guy uh, who was uh, at Paramount getting getting scripts killed if they didn't they didn't sync up with these missions and uh, pushing things through that actually made America look look great. So this won't come as a surprise to any of our listeners, but there were times that you talk about in the book where the actions of the CIA actually made their lives very difficult, where they uh, very counterproductive. Uh, particularly when they're trying to get these propaganda efforts, to, like Guatemala, for instance. The actions of 19, the 1950s made their propaganda efforts unbelievably difficult in Latin America. It seems like one side wasn't talking to the other. Um, and you're going to have times when propaganda is used to kind of bail out some of the operations that go bad. You, 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 you talk in the book about the CIA kind of forcing Henry Luce to rewrite Time magazine articles to try to make up for some of the operational problems that the CIA ran into. 
Yeah, some of um, what you see um, in places like Latin America in the third world, it's just like the, the, the sense of history in those places is so different that a new magazine targeting the intellectuals won't land there <clears throat> the same way it would land at home. So we, we know our audience better when we're, when we're planning for a home audience. Um, and we have a sense of our heroic history here in the United States, but the sense of U.S. kind of foreign policy history in Latin America was one of a bully, essentially. Um, so the first magazine that, that was targeting um, Latin America was called Cuadernos, Notebooks of Cultural Freedom. And its, um, its editor was a guy who'd really had some serious run-ins with Stalin, a guy named Gorkin. And he, I think he had a permanent little hole in his head from a, one of the assassination temp, attempts by Stalin's thugs. So he, a lot of these survivors of like Soviet persecution were just, they were PTSD militant, talk about militant liberty. And they weren't actually presiding over the, the best tone the most persuasive arguments, the most um, sort of rational-sounding ways of presenting a magazine that's intending to sort of be a cultural bridge. So um, this guy that I mentioned before, Keith Botsford, he was behind the scenes arguing for that first magazine, which sounded, you know, quasi-McCarthyite to some, some Latin Americans. He was arguing for that to be discontinued. Finally, it was, long after he started arguing this, I think, in 1966, and finally, the, the magazines start to do, um, they start to involve more local voices, and I think that's when they started to get better. I think Mundo Nuevo is probably one of the best. It still ran op-eds, which were, I think, um, in bad taste, defending some really awful CIA programs, but the programs, I just assume, would have been hated um, outright. They would have been covered in their own media and Latin Americans wouldn't need a U.S.-created uh, magazine to tell them what to think about it. So, yeah, at times I see these um, these forces kind of working against each other, and if the idea is to make America likable, <laughs> let alone great again, but make it likable again, then the the first thing the CIA should have done was to stop, um, to stop doing these covert... Um, illegal actions that they think um i'm wondering how much how much resentment there may have been from the side of cia doing the propaganda versus the side of cia doing operations because it seems like it's like come on guys you're making life very very difficult for us by by doing these things that's pissing everybody off uh, making our jobs much more more difficult to try to get everybody on our side yeah i think from my research, I sense that that would have been the case, but with the following caveat, a lot of the cultural CIA guys, um, you know, you have to get into the really high levels of the hierarchy to even be aware of some of the hardcore covert ops that yeah. were being done. And there's going to be, um, you know, in some cases, a long period of cover-up. One thing that was um, sort of known as it was happening, despite the secrecy, was the Bay of Pigs. And you actually do have this wonderful moment, which I don't think I've talked about yet with any interviewer, where the cultural um, sort of network that the CIA is, is, is promoting uh, is aware. It involves, um, there was a, a former president of Costa Rica who was given CIA money to launch a magazine called Combate. And he and his team were really dialed into American politics because... He's coming at it through the American Committee side and through the Free Europe Committee side and not the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And so people like Norman Thomas, the perpetual socialist um, candidate for president, but who was also friends with Alan Dulles, um, people who are dialed into the Democratic and Republican parties, they're all aware from this um, January 19, I think, 59, uh, no, January 1960 article in the Times, kind of outing the CIA's plan um, to do a Bay of Pigs. So they actually start doing this back-channel um, mission to talk the young Kennedy administration out of out of doing it. And you see um, you see these letters talking about where they're going to meet in Westchester because 
Um, you know, the former president of Costa Rica, his name is Pepe Figueres, is going to be in town that day, and he's been invited up, and the president's going to be there. And you see this, like, sort of soft um, uh, confluence of powers, and I think it's clear from things they said uh, later to biographers that, you know, Figueres, um, the, the future presidential historian, uh, Arthur Schlesinger, they schemed to stop the Bay of Pigs. Um, Schlesinger had kind of a hair, harebrained kind of replacement plan that was just a different covert op, but <laughs> they actually did try to stop it, and I think that makes them, um, you know, to my, to my pacifist uh, Quaker ancestors, <laughs> that would have made them heroic. Yeah, absolutely. And, interestingly enough, we talked about the fact that the Soviet Union tried to, or successfully stopped uh, Pasternak from getting a uh, the Nobel Prize for Dr. Zhivago. Uh, the, the, they're not the only ones with this uh, kind of guilt on their hands. A name people may know, Pablo Neruda, a very famous writer. According to you and according to the book, the CIA really successfully prevented him from winning the Nobel Prize for literature. Yeah, the first time. So with yeah. Pasternak, um, despite Soviet wishes, he was awarded the prize. Oh, right. He, he just had to ref- like. He had to formally down, publicly right. refuse it, which means I think they, they created an escrow account, and I think that money sat somewhere for a while, and it was his, but then he died. So I'm not even sure if anyone's traced where that money went. I'm sure somebody has. I didn't bother to do that because it happens after my story ends. Um, but Pasternak's royalties were sort of being smuggled into the country, and that was part of what got his mistress and literary agent in trouble. With Neruda, he was didn't, he was he was sort of blacklisted um, by the by the Congress for Cultural Freedom operatives. This guy, John Hunt, who was the number two Congress for Cultural Freedom, uh, you know, person in the leadership um, after this guy, Michael Josselson, they wrote a white paper delineating his, his supposed sympathies for Stalin, and some of it was really um, thin. It was like he took the Stalin Prize late in 1953. Well, the Stalin Prize by then was about to be renamed. Stalin had died earlier that year. And to a lot of Westerners, it would have been just really taboo to take it. But to someone from the third world who's kind of non-aligned, who's sympathetic to socialist ideas, maybe he's being a little too blind. I think a lot of people would agree to you know, Stalinist atrocities. But he's very clear a little bit later on U.S. atrocities in places like Vietnam. Um, and uh, he was supposedly on the shortlist in 63, and by 64 it's given to Sartre. Um, what Francis Stoner Saunders, a great historian, um, showed in her book The Cultural Cold War was that they conspired, they wrote this white paper, they tied him to the to, to more than just taking the prize. They, they implied that he helped in on one of the assassination plots to kill somebody like Trotsky, um, <laughs> which would have just, I mean, to me, I would love to see what the evidence for that was. But uh, whether that was why Sartre got the 1964 prize uh, and whether that was why he didn't accept it, I, I, don't, think, I don't think that's the case. Um, but if there was any fence sitting on, on that you know, famously secretive committee, this paper might have sort of pushed uh, pushed Sartre over the top and, and prevented Neruda from getting it. What's also interesting about Neruda is that they, they didn't allow him into the country until they wanted him to come for like a pen, a pen center uh, uh, conference. And so then this person who's sort of persona non grata, he gets here, uh, he's outspoken about the Vietnam War, uh, both while he's here and right, at, right after he leaves and returns to Latin America. And then the Cubans will no longer talk to him because he was trying to do what he thought of as, you know, um, restoring his cultural legacy in the United States, one of the, one of the big, great literary civilizations. Um, but a lot of the Cubans shunned him for coming um, that time. And, you know, of course, then the coup in 70, uh, 71, um, no, 73, rather, on uh, his buddy Pinochet, and soon after that, Neruda dies. So there's a conspiracy in in Chile that Neruda was was killed during the coup against um, against Allende. Um, and I don't think the evidence has held up for that. But yeah, there was constant conspiring against leftists like Neruda. And one of the funny elements of this is 
they sent Robert Lowell to Latin America to do sort of a goodwill poetry tour. And that, you know, imagine something like that happening under the Trump administration. <laughs> um, unfortunately, Lowell is just a little bit psychologically frail at the time. I think he was described as manic depressive or bipolar. And he starts drinking martinis before lunch and during lunch and climbing up on the equestrian statues. And so there's this famous scene in uh, some of his biographies of him kind of losing it and, um, you know, all of the cultural sort of uh, respect that he was there to establish for the United States, of course, turns turns him into a laughingstock. And um, obviously that, that was one of those places where uh, what was a cultural Cold War um, mission uh, ends up feeling like one of the fiascos of the covert uh, CIA, like the Bay of Pigs. I'd like to take a minute to tell you about our newest sponsor, Audible. Audible.com is the premier provider of digital audiobooks. It has over 180,000 titles to choose from in every genre, thrillers, business, romance, comedy, sci-fi, and more. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices for listening anytime, anywhere. Now, for us, the listeners of SpyCast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. And as I've told you before, we don't just accept anyone as a sponsor here at SpyCast. There have been plenty of companies we've turned away. I want to be sure it's right for who we are as a podcast, and most importantly, that it's something you as a listener might actually care about. So I checked out the book available on Audible, and they have tons of spy-related books. Everything from Michael Hayden to Clint Emerson to Malcolm Nance to John Le Carre. It's likely if you've heard it here on SpyCast, you can find it there. So to get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial, go to audibletrial.com spy. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com slash spy. Yeah, you brought up Cuba, and I want to kind of move on to that here, too. Um, I think Cuba's interesting because you're going to, when you read your chapters about Cuba, this is an r- interesting balance uh, of people you've heard of, as far as my listeners are concerned. Cuba really pits George Plimpton, who we've talked about already, against people like Ernest Hemingway and against Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know, these kind of famous authors pitting off about with the Cuban Revolution and, and how much Fidel Castro should be liked or disliked by the United States. Yeah. Yeah, um, that was one of those places where I realized that one chapter should become two, and then if I, if I didn't cut it off, eventually it could become a whole book on... Um, the writers arriving at the Bay of Pigs and trying to decide, I mean, the writers arriving after the Cuban Revolution, before the Bay of Pigs and trying to decide, like, um, you know, whose side to take, essentially. And so I ended up telling the story in a kind of a cross-cut way um, through the eyes of several people, but mainly George Plimpton and Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And the reason I wanted to do that I guess I alluded to it a little bit earlier, is just how history looks so differently um, when it's local. You know, like the the effect and the influence of the United States. We think of ourselves as, you know, everything from George Washington forward and World War II. We came and helped Europe and rebuilt it. You know, Latin Americans have different touchstones, and one of them for Garcia Marquez was this massacre that was presided over by uh, United Fruit. Um, in his in his home nation of Colombia, so when he gets to the to the Cuban Revolution and they invited writers, Fidel Castro was sensitive to the idea of not just propaganda but sort of cultural um, soft power bridge making, um, and he wanted, of course, socialist revolution to spread. He was not yet fully invested in kind of a, a Soviet aligned future for Cuba, um, and so. One of the things I was trying to do was just show, I think uh, the, 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 the writers on history whom I admire show you sometimes how things could have turned out differently. So, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that the attempt to talk the Kennedy administration out of the Bay of Pigs was one of those moments for me. I was just in wonder at that, finding those voices, those letters. Um, but seeing... Um, the early Cuban Revolution through Garcia Marquez's eyes is, is another. He actually did, um, you know, news writing for the state 
the early state Cuban, um, sort of the Cuban AP and the Associated Press. So it was called Prensa Latina, and it was intended to be an answer to the, the sort of the monopoly of U.S.-dominated uh, press agencies in the region. And they were sensitive to the idea that the U.S. would start to, um, you know, would start to front a certain a certain view against the leftist politics of people like Fidel, um, and they were going to maybe over overstate the ties uh, that Cuba then was exploring to the Soviet Union. And you know, one point I wanted to make in that section, I think John Lee Anderson makes in his his, his uh, really masterful biography of uh, of Che Guevara, which is that. If the United States had played that all a little bit differently, especially insofar as um, buying up the Cuban sugar crop, things might not have hastened along in the way that they did later. It's it's possible they would have anyway. But when the U.S. refused to buy um, uh, Cuba's sugar crop, there was really nobody else who could afford to make that big an investment besides the Soviet Union. There were other moments like that when, when there were questions of who owned the oil and how much the early revolutionaries were going to nationalize various industries. And it's another one of those areas where the, the, the cultural operatives who were working under the auspices of the CIA were probably a tiny bit more sensitive to um, how how much bullying could backfire in a region like that. So I try to show that through Plimpton's eyes. His dad is, of course, working with Adlai Stevenson in the UN the day that the you know, essentially the Bay of Pigs operation starts. Um, essentially, Stevenson is tricked into offering a lie to the public that the CIA has given him. Stevenson probably didn't know he was lying. And George Plimpton's dad is sitting there just off camera, like, you know, eating crow with his boss, feeling like they've been tricked. Um, meanwhile, Plimpton is there watching Hemingway and trying to finish. I mean, he's He's already finished the great Hemingway interview, but he's trying to turn that into a friendship with Hemingway, and he's gauging Hemingway's sympathy with the leftist uh, with the leftist tendencies of the revolution. And um, you do see this moment where he does this light touch kind of lobbying to tell to tell uh, Hemingway. Hemingway's being told that it's unpatriotic to to live there uh, during this you know controversial time, and he eventually is talked out of living there. Um, and Plimpton sort of gives him this one little letter from a friend. It turns out the friend is Norman Mailer, um, asking uh, the Cubans not to take that final step of aligning with the Soviet Union. Um, and then, you know, that's the Plimpton side, and then you see it all through um, Garcia Marquez's yeah. side. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting conversation. I mean, anyone who likes Hemingway sees the kind of the torture that Hemingway has to go through, you know, the whole un-Americanism versus just loving his life in Cuba and Marquez, yeah. similar to that, too. Um, let me... I like this book a lot, so I'm going to throw that out there as the first thing. And actually, I recommend uh, anyone who's interested in this cultural aspect of what the CIA did to, to grab this book uh, and read it. That being said, you, you've already talked about yourself as a, a pacifist Quaker upbringing. Um, there, there are a couple things I wanted to ask you about that I think will, when, my, when the listeners go out and, and grab this book... Uh, they may think similar things, and so we can maybe uh, maybe head some of those off of the past before the arguments even come up in the first place. My my first concern is to use a kind of a wonky academic word. Are you sure you want to give CIA as much agency as you do here in this book? And, and that again, that's a fancy way of saying how much power CIA is appearing to have at this time. Uh, somewhat is uh, antithetical to the arguments that a lot of intelligence historians make uh, and continue to make about how the CIA is really just enacting broader American policy. Does that question make sense? Is this yeah, that, is it less agency sense. and more CIA is doing what they're told from above? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's a great question. And, you know, um, just to go back to my bio, I'm, I'm essentially phase one. I'm a poet who gets an MFA and starts a literary magazine. <laughs> phase two, um, I see the U.S. Uh, enacting policies like the war in Iraq when Bush uh, comes into office, and so I, you know, I launched this magazine called Guernica to try to bring together some of my interests in literature and in politics. 
Um, I'm not certainly by any stretch of the imagination a military or an intelligence historian. So it's it's you know it's 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 my attempt to tell a good a good story through the eyes of writers, so that I can look at how politics happens to writers. One of the the quotes that I didn't actually know until after the book was finished, but that I thought of as um, kind of defining the spirit of the book was um, it was by a, a Berkeley scholar named John Powell, and he just said simply, "Be soft on people and tough on the institutions." Mm-hmm. And if if your um, if your question is, "Am I too hard on the people at the CIA because there's a top-down hierarchy?" Well, then I would just throw that back at you and say, well, can't the CIA adapt to notice that that top-down hierarchy often has resulted in, you know, awful covert actions, awful illegal actions? Um, And so my book is actually kind of a meditation on the collision between even a a light-touch regime of secrecy presiding over the media, which I think this, this turns into. And I don't think that that's a compatible way to do yeah. journalism because journalism lives in the, in the light of day and it's, uh, it's all sort of uh, enlivened and made possible through transparency. So where I get to in the book, it's not a deep, uh, a deep look into the whole history of the CIA or the actual um, structure of the CIA. What I was trying to carve out uh, a meditation on is simply how um, secrecy, which seemed like the best way to quickly get this money to fund the arts and create this ministry yeah. of culture, um, is no way to do journalism. That's where I come down. So um, anything beyond that, uh, my look into the CIA is just necessitated by the fact that the CIA's world has collided many times with mine. I'm also someone who used to live in Latin America uh, for a couple of years and having lived there and seeing what that top-down hierarchy that you describe, what it does to actual people, especially in places like Guatemala where the legacy of the CIA coup just lasts, lasts for, for decades and gives people, you know, palpable PTSD-like symptoms from it. Um, you know, terror uh, sown into not just the people but into the institutions. So, yeah, if it's if no one's in charge because it's a top-down institution, then that needs to be, I think, looked at. Um, is it naive to think that I can say that as someone who's not a, a scholar of intelligence? I don't know. I don't care. Um, I think it was naive of the CIA to think that they could keep the Congress for Cultural Freedom secret. And when its secrecy was exposed, actually the only way that its legacy survives is if they continue to say, well, we never censored and we published great stuff. And so where I come down on that is, yeah, they published great writers, but they did, in fact, censor quite a lot. And so really the book is just an attempt to say that much, to, yeah. to restore the truth there. Absolutely. And I think the pushback is, is less about that. And you're, you're, there's no question that some of these actions ended up just, even if they weren't, even if we don't have the ethical conversation about it, they were disastrous policy-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I, perhaps the pushback from my neck of the woods and my, maybe my, the listeners are going to be involved in this as well uh, is the CIA having the the power to make policy, which it doesn't. Um, and and I, and and almost like if I if I retitled your book, if you give me the presumption to do that, um, I, would, I would love to hear you. You know, I'd love to hear your ideas. It would be how the U.S. government using the CIA as a tool to trick the world's best writers. And I think people will be a lot, the intelligence community would be a lot more comfortable with the fact that, you know, the, the, this is a U.S. government policy. And I'm not, that's not justifying it, it was the policy itself was garbage. But, you know, some of this is coming from on high. And I don't mean on high as an Alan Dulles. I mean on high being Dwight Eisenhower and on high being U.S. Cold War policy. And I think that's where perhaps the, uh, the, the, ev- the, the evidence may not exist that these policies were, were overall devised by CIA. Uh, and I think that's where my pushback centers. Well, I would just, I would push back insofar as what I saw. It's a yeah. fair point. Um, if, you know, if I'm hearing you right to say that a lot of the rolling back and regime change stuff, you know, this is envisioned by people like um, George Kennan. Yep. Um, it trickles down into um, 
the covert op side of the CIA, and therefore it ends up being enacted also by people who might have something to, to say to these guys because they're their colleagues because the Congress for Cultural Freedom and the FEC and all the cultural fronts are also on the covert ops side for, for budgetary reasons. Um, but uh, some of the people in my book who um, were criticized most harshly, they were criticized by, the, by their own colleagues. Mm-hmm. Michael Josselson is, is, I think, fair game. And he's sort of at the top of the Congress for Cultural Freedom, um, paid by the CIA, knows he's working for the CIA. And what came at him from some of his friends and colleagues was that this sense of betrayal. You lied to us. You told us, you know, the money was coming from one place. It was coming from somewhere else. Now, I don't know every single conversation that leads to that structure. But what I can report is... um, what the writers felt, what the editors felt, what some of those guys said behind the scenes, um, in all honesty, to their fellow colleagues. Um, and so, to me, if um, if there's a sense that um, you know there's there's um, a, a mistake in terms of um, whose policy was it, I know that uh, that was one thing that Alan Dulles even said in his this memoir about the CIA, uh, which is that the CIA doesn't make policy. But if the president himself is often not told about some of these actions, then right. they're de, de facto yep. making policy on other countries' behalf. Um, and the president is often looped in later. And I think that is part of the secrecy regime regime that I'm, I'm trying to criticize. I'm trying to stay within my area, which is sort of uh, covert cultural production. But of course, it also overlaps. And so the critique from my side is um, kind of a structural critique, and I don't have an answer for it, but secrecy presiding over journalism, for instance, or media, to me, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a failed structural concept. Well, I mean, thanks for, I mean, you're a good sport for, for coming and taking on these kind of questions. I mean, I think the, the only no, I, other... I think that's what it's all about yeah. is, is, is talking these things through. So I want to ask you, I mean, I know you, you can only take on so much when you, when you write a book like this, but at what point is there a, how else, and this is a counterfactual to a degree, and it's hypothetical to a degree, but the, the Soviets were arguably as bad or worse in their use of propaganda, which you've already talked about. You certainly already acknowledge this. Uh, there, you know, there are things like in the 1980s when the Soviets claimed that the United States government created the AIDS virus, which... Uh, is about as bad as it gets. In what ways, covertly, could CIA have combated this um, and justified would be justified? Obviously, it'd have to be secret. In what ways would have they have been justified if they had asked some of these writers if they'd be willing to be involved? I know you have things like I, I, I'm not sure how much or how little you know about things like the Jazz Ambassadors, where the State Department literally asked American artists to go and be, you know, essentially soft power around the world if yeah. if this had been more overt do you think it would have carried uh, less of an ethical question yeah i think that that is the crux of the of the question the crux of my concern when the state department does it semi-openly or more openly than the cia it i think the feeling back then would have been that it may not have worked as well um because uh, you know there's now there's a known propagandistic hand behind it um, but I think it was naive of the CIA to think that the secrecy would last and it, it, it thought that because it presumed to have such control over the media when some of the secrecy is exposed by actual journalists doing actual journalism they doubled down on the secrecy and to me that's where it becomes really problematic um, I would argue that the secrecy was not required. I would argue that it may have felt radical at the time to compete with the propaganda openly so that there is that level of trust with the listener, with the reader. And if we actually believe in our culture, then we're, uh, you know, we're saying as much. When Louis Armstrong is playing, um, you know, Life is a Holiday, Celebrate, uh, whatever that song is called, Cabaret, um, whether you know it's a great song no matter who is sponsoring his tour but if if the idea is let's not tell anybody who's sponsoring it and that's exposed i think the whole idea of the subtlety is exposed as a lie and i think that um, creates 
another kind of blowback besides the kind that affected the coups. So I would argue that secrecy was not required. I understand how tough it would have been to get this through Congress at the time of the Korean War, for instance. Um, we're, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place in, in much the same way today. How do you argue with people whose culture and whose essential kind of sense of American history is so different from yours politically that you just don't feel like you can make any headway? That's that's the that's the messy uh, world of, of democracy. We have to sort of build consensus slowly, and um, you know the secrecy. I see why it was appealing, but I just um, I guess where I come down is that secrecy cannot be uh, the patron of journalism, for instance. We like to thank ZipRecruiter and Audible for their sponsorship of Spycast. Remember, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com/first. And get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial by going to audibletrial.com slash spy. Well, the book is Finks, How the CIA Tricked the World's Best Writers. I won't try to rewrite the title any more than that. <laughs> Joel that. Whitney has been our guest today. Joel, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Like, this book, whether you, it rubs you the wrong way or not, is chock full of great information about how the CIA used culture to fight the Cold War I highly advise reading it, regardless of what neck of the uh, the political spectrum you you're on. Uh, and yes, I'm a lefty too, but you know that this book, uh, uh, my recommendations in the past have been pretty good. So take a look at Finks, uh, Joel Whitney. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at Spycast. It was such a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us on Spycast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at INTL Spycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.